This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon.com. And we're back. Yes, with some extremely exciting news about one of our older episodes before we get started tonight. Yes, while we recorded some of this show a few days ago, this morning the Today Show ran a segment promoting a documentary that's running on the History Channel the Sunday after the show drops, and we just had to get it into the cold open. It claims new evidence in Amelia Earhart's disappearance, and while we generally say about all claims of new evidence that they need to be taken with a grain of salt because frequently the evidence isn't really new at all, it's just repurposed or a little suspect in its nature, and it's being used to generate interest in an old topic that they know will attract viewers, listeners, or clicks, and therefore revenue. So you always have to look at this stuff with a critical eye, but in this case, they really have dug up something new, and for us, it's pretty exciting. Earhart researcher and former Treasury Department investigator Les Kinney found a recently declassified picture in the National Archives that appears to show Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, on a dock in the Marshall Islands, specifically the Jaluit Atoll. Now, this island was off-limits to Americans at the time this picture was taken, and you can see what looks like Earhart sitting on the dock with her back to the camera, and then a man who nearly exactly matches Fred Noonan standing off to her right or the left side of the picture as you're looking at it. The Today Show played a segment from the forthcoming documentary where the photos were forensically analyzed, and the examiner concluded that the people in the photo were a very likely match for Earhart and Noonan. This strongly supports the idea that they survived ditching the plane and that they ditched in the Marshall Islands, just as we had reported. Now, to take this a step further, you can also see a ship in the photo towing a barge with something on it that matches the dimensions of Earhart's Lockheed Electra 10E. Now, that ship was the Japanese Navy's 2,080-ton naval survey vessel, the Koshu, the very ship that we told listeners was rumored by eyewitnesses to have towed her plane on a barge out of the Marshall Islands, and back to Saipan. The bottom line is this photo is 100% in line with our lesser-known pre-existing theory of her disappearance that we examined thoroughly in our episodes on it over three years ago. To be clear, we didn't come up with that Saipan theory. It had been around for some time, but it was probably the most overlooked one out there. Also, I think it may have been buried. Our research leads us to believe that it was the most likely explanation for what happened to Earhart and Noonan, and this new photo backs up pretty much every single detail we went over at the time. And it was not just that she was captured, but that she and Noonan were held prisoner on Saipan and ultimately executed, the Electra having been burned on the airfield there and buried to destroy evidence. Therein lies the real tragedy, because it's a national embarrassment. We further reported that there was quite possibly a cover-up by the U.S. government to conceal the fact that America's sweetheart had been captured and left to die. This notion is further supported by something Tom Costello said on the Today Show this morning relating to the forthcoming documentary, and that's that they also discovered a 170-page folder on Earhart is missing from the National Archives. We're not big believers in smoking guns, but it really seems like there might be one here. As of this recording session, the documentary hasn't yet aired, but it will be running on the History Channel on Sunday, July 9th, two days after this episode is posted, so you can bet we'll be watching. We're fans of the host of the program, Sean Henry, who is an internet security specialist and former executive assistant director at the FBI. We're going to have to see how their findings shake out and line up with what we originally reported in episodes four and five of Astonishing Legends in 2014. And if it warrants a follow-up episode, we'll get one into the mix. In the meanwhile, if you're new to Astonishing Legends and you want the in-depth report on all of these Earhart events that are unfolding now... Look through our older shows on iTunes for our series on Amelia Earhart from November of 2014, or just follow this link. 
bit.do slash airheartjapan. That's B-I-T dot D-O slash E-A-R-H-A-R-T Japan. All right, can I say it? <laughs> uh, it's a little tacky, but go ahead. We told you. <laughs> Mystery solved. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Father, I never thought it would be as cruel as this. I always thought that I would want to suffer for others so that they would not have to go to hell, but that it could be this bad and this cruel and terrible. Annalisa Michel, from a transcript of a recorded conversation with exorcist Father Renz. Join us tonight for part one of our series on Annalisa Michel, a young German girl whose death after a failed exorcism in 1976 led to a criminal trial. One thing we've learned from doing our show these past few years is that you have to remember at the heart of every story like this, there are people, human beings, people with hopes, dreams, families, and ideas. And whenever you stumble across some blog online or sensationalistic YouTube video that capitalizes on the misfortune of the souls caught up in unexplainable events, the people at the heart of them are often left on the cutting room floor. Well, that is true. And it's not only disrespectful, it removes a key component of the story, the experiencer. Annalisa Michel was a young woman who was extremely intelligent, thoughtful, loving, and dreamed of someday becoming a teacher or a catechist, which is someone who gives basic instruction in religious teachings and practice, especially in the Catholic doctrine. Well, in telling her story, we are hoping to treat her with as much respect as possible. And her story is that of a possession that Annalisa and her entire family, as well as a cadre of Catholic priests and a bishop, all believed was real. Although later, the case became extremely controversial— We'll be relaying the events that unfolded for you in as detailed a way as we can, and then following through with an analysis of the story as we continue with the series. We have to warn you that in addition to frightening ideas of evil and demons, we'll also from time to time be quoting some of the things that Annalisa said during her darkest hours, and that language is often foul, derogatory, and extremely disrespectful to the people that were in the room with her during her exorcism. If you feel like this is likely to leave you disturbed or offended, then you should turn back now. Because our audience is multi-generational and includes some younger folks, we will continue, as we have in most cases in the past, to bleep the foul language when necessary. But we'll also be playing some original recordings of sessions with her, presented in German, which will not be censoring. So parents listening with kids, be warned, the first episode of this series, tonight's, may be a little extreme for some children, especially if they understand German. Yeah, really. Well, we're relaying a series of events here interspersed with our own observations and opinions. As with all episodes of our show, listeners are strongly advised to do their own research on these events independent of what we are presenting and draw their own conclusions. What we're saying here is we're not experts in these fields. We're not representing ourselves as experts in them or any other one, frankly. We're just storytellers. Should you find yourself dealing with similar circumstances, it is incumbent upon you to do your own research, completely independent of any aid and influence from our show. Our show, including interviews with guests, is for entertainment purposes only. It's not meant to be a guideline for behavior. Part one of this series, tonight's episode, is going to cover the tragic events leading up to Adelisa's death. The ongoing parts will be looking at the starkly competing opinions of what was wrong with Adelisa, and trust us, there are many. Rest assured, we will be looking at every angle, spiritual, medical, psychological, and varying combinations of those. 
So please hold your questions until the end of the series. Yes, invariably on these multi-parters, we get a bit of a, what about this or what about that? And oftentimes it'll be a reference to something we're fully going to address before the series is finished. (laughs) Boy, that's the truth. We do get a few letters where people are like, I listened to the first 10 minutes and I was outraged, you know, (laughs) because something triggered them and they immediately had to write in. It's like, well, give it more than 10, 15, even 30 minutes because a lot of people also go, or in our case, an hour and a half. We don't even get to the story for 30 minutes. So give it some time. Or you're thinking that you don't understand the story because I didn't get the whole thing. It's like, well, this is just part one. All we ask is that you keep an open mind on this journey, but hold your questions until it's completed. And then remember that the wholesale discounting of ideas that don't fit into your belief system can often leave you blind to the reality of a situation such as poor analysis. All right, rock and roll. Let's jump into this thing. So we should begin with an overview, right? Yeah, let's start with the time period. We got to set the stage. Well, the year this case culminated was 1976, and that was a leap year. Yes, it was. And, you know, a lot of interesting stuff happened that year. In fact, the first Cray supercomputer was developed, which is pretty fascinating. Also, I didn't know it was this old, Steve Jobs formed Apple Computer. That's right, in their garage, right? Uh, Wozniak and all those? Yeah. Uh Yeah. And here's another thing that's interesting. Howard Hughes and J. Paul Getty both died that year, along with Agatha Christie and one of my favorite directors of all time, Fritz Lang, who also was German. Right, right. It's the end of an era, and, you know, that happens nowadays, and people think, like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? We're losing all these greats. Yeah, that's a terrible year, but you have to remember that that just happens, you know, after generation after generation. So we're experiencing that now as part of last year and and this year as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So that sets the stage for those of you who are old enough to remember what it might have felt like in 1976. And for those of you who aren't old enough, at least you know when Apple Computer was born. (laughs) Yeah. And this entire show is produced on Mac, so I'm certainly grateful for that. There were a few other things that went on, not just in 1976, but in the preceding years, pretty close to then, right? Yes. Now, a lot of people are going to make this connection. We certainly did, and I don't see how you can't. But this whole era, a lot of people will give the moniker of the satanic panic, or maybe the beginning of this. So, The book, The Exorcist, by American novelist William Peter Blatty had been out for five years, and the movie, The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin, one of the scariest films of all time, it's been many times voted, uh, had been out for three years, having premiered in 1973. Ah. Now, Annalisa said that Jesus had told her, and keep in mind, she'd claimed to have had some communications with religious holy figures, she had said that Jesus had told her that soon the whole world would be talking about the devil and hell. And if you look at it in that context, yeah, kinda. That was one prediction she had early on. As these films were starting to come out and before really the copycat films came out because The Exorcist was so popular and and did so well. Not only the book, but the movie, of course. Yeah, that's right. It's important to note the presence of The Exorcist in the global zeitgeist, even getting to use the German uh, zeitgeist (laughs) word in respect to a German story. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now we want to talk a little bit about the area where this took place, and that's a small city in Bavaria known as Klingenberg which I'm not sure if I'm saying right. But, you're, uh, you're close. Yeah, I'll give um, you that. Yeah, so that's almost 40 miles or about 65 kilometers southeast of Frankfurt. 
Uh, I probably didn't say that right. Well, it was very American. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, well, yeah. I am American, so that's my excuse. That is there. fine. Um, hey, Europeans do the same thing. Why are they giving us flack? Klingenberg. Uh, oh, uh, that's Klingenberg? better. Yeah. No, no, that, that Klingenberg. Klingenberg. Like that. It's known for winemaking going back to the 13th century and probably earlier. They actually dated all the way back to the Romans. It's also known for forestry and today, now ceramic tile manufacturing. And it's pretty much been a modestly successful town for a long time. There's a clay mine nearby that is active to this day and has done so well for the city's residents that prior to World War I, they all got profit sharing from it. Money was just pouring into the city from the clay mine. So it's used, I guess, as an additive in graphite pencil production. So well, there you go. They're really popular, though, for their terraced vineyards at one end of the town. Yes. And uh, so it's the Mine River, I think, straddles it. So on one end of the town, there's two different forests. So yes, lots of logging, lots of forestry going on. And supposedly there's a really good Pinot Noir that comes out of there. I'm going to see if I can find here at, at the local store. Mm, very nice. So let's talk a little bit about the story that this whole series is going to center around. And that's the story of Annalisa Michel. In July of 1976, she was at home on an upstairs floor in the back of her family's house. It was not her regular room. This room actually overlooked the vineyards of Klingenberg. In this room, the Michels had hoped that neighbors would not hear her raging and screaming. By now, Annalisa had been suffering off and on for eight years from seizures. She had personally requested an exorcism from the church twice, but one was not granted for her until September 25, 1975, 10 months prior to the night of her death. On May 30th, one month earlier than that, one of the fathers who first came to her aid, Father Alt, brought a friend who was a medical doctor to see her at the family home where she was sequestered in that upstairs back room. The man's name was Dr. Roth, and upon entering the room, he reportedly said, My God, she's got the stigmata. After staying only a few minutes, he then told the family, There are no injections against the devil. On June 30th of 1976, her 67th and final exorcism rite was performed. By now, she was a shadow of her former self. Her knee ligaments were torn from repeated genuflexion, a symptom of her condition. One time she knelt and stood over 600 times in a single session with her exorcist, Father Renz. She had lost over 100 pounds, wasting away to just 68 pounds. But even though initially she had stated that she had not been allowed to eat by the demons that possessed her, she now made it clear that she was attempting to starve them out of her body. Remarkably, at the beginning of April, during one of Father Alt's visits to her, she had told him that May and June would be very bad, but that July would bring resolution. And now July was less than 24 hours away. In the middle of her exorcism this night, she stopped Father Renz and said two words, please, absolution. Renz had had difficulty understanding her. He had to ask her boyfriend, Peter, what she had said. He repeated, please, absolution. These were the last words she ever spoke to Father Renz. As this session ended, Father Renz and her boyfriend, Peter, left. But she asked her mother, Anna, to stay. With Father Wren's gone, she began screaming and gyrating again. As midnight approached, her father told the demons that they had to leave her because now it was July 1st and she was to be left alone so that she may recover. She quietly turned on her side and went to sleep. She never woke up. All right, so this story is about a lot more than just Annalisa's final hours. It's about her whole life and what led up to these events and trying to understand how she got into the condition that she was in, 
We're going to be referencing a lot of books for this series tonight. One of the main ones is The Exorcism of Annalisa Michel by Felicitas de Goodman. I'm not really sure how to say her name. And this book, though, was the inspiration for the 2005 U.S. film The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which was released actually the year Goodman passed away. So I don't know if she got a chance to see that or participate. She probably participated in the production depending on the state of her health towards the end of her life. But Goodman was, by her own statement, a multilingual scientific translator with expertise in hematology and biochemistry, studying neurophysiology and psychiatry in graduate school. She stated that in writing her book, she also spoke at length with counselors at the Epilepsy Association. So she takes a very thorough look at the case. But in terms of cognitive bias, even with this background, Goodman clearly leans towards the belief that this was a spiritual issue for Annalisa. In later parts of our series, we're going to look at other sources in which that's not the case. But you have to understand that a lot of the information coming from what we're representing tonight is coming from a book that was written by somebody who clearly believed that Annalisa was possessed, even though she took a very, I think, well-rounded look at the big picture, looking at all of the court records and the documentation and interviews and even listening to all the tapes of which there were many that were made from Annalisa's sessions. She took all of that into account, but she seemed to be firmly in the camp of possession being the problem. Yeah, and I found a book called Annalisa Michel, the True Story of a Case of Demonic Possession, Germany, 1976, by Lawrence E.U. LeBlanc and Father Jose Antonio Fortea. And so far, it's pretty middle of the road. It's pretty balanced and pretty concise and well-written. So we'll be pulling some items from that as well. Yeah, and as far as exorcisms go, this is a legendary story for a couple of reasons. One thing that you have to know is that it made international news when it happened, which is not something the church is in favor of. They like to keep these kinds of things very private and internal, because not only for the privacy of the person involved, but also because sensationalizing it is just, it's not good for anyone. And No, it's, and, it's, and also it's pretty much what happened <laughs> for the reasons, one, it's very controversial. People have always questioned, you know, what the church does uh, in their secret practices, but Sometimes these things go very badly, and again, they're not trying to cover up anything here. It's about the privacy of the family as well, and, and also yeah. just not splashing this across the front page because it's very sensational. Yeah, and here, 41 years later, it's still a really controversial case because people will argue very strongly over whether or not she was possessed or just suffering from a combination of medical and psychological issues that combined to create the appearance of a possession. And then you get into the whole thing about, well, if it looks like a possession, is it a possession or is it just a combination of other issues? And that's one of the things that was really fascinating about the movie, the adaptation of Goodman's book, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. It takes a look at the court case that followed her death, which we'll be doing not in this episode, but we're going to be looking at that as well, because that is a whole nother can of worms about presenting the idea of a legal definition for whether something is evil or just scientifically explainable or whether the two cross anywhere, and it's a mess. What's really interesting to me, and we're certainly you know going to have this as a recurring theme throughout the case, there's several levels here going on, because one, you either think that possession is possible, that's a real thing, and it really happens, or you don't. In that subset, it's either possession is not real, it, it can't happen. So then you look at like, well, what did they do to her? Was that responsible? Was that negligent? 
Should you even be doing these things when possession doesn't exist? You're just abusing somebody who really has a mental health issue, as severe as it was. Or the other subset is that you believe that possession is real and true. But in that case, does she really have a condition of possession? And if she does or doesn't, then is it also negligence or abuse? It's really interesting to look at it laid out like that because there are legal issues, there are spiritual issues, and those really don't go together well. No, it's really hard to reconcile. And when this was over, Annalise's parents and the two priests that were involved in the exorcism were criminally prosecuted for negligent homicide. Yeah, you cannot believe in possession. is not a real thing. You, you don't have to believe in anything spiritual. But that is a part that can't be denied here because you have to make that determination, which is the really hard part for the legal system. It doesn't matter what country you're in. That determination has to be made in the most unbiased, objective kind of way possible. So it's a really difficult thing, which is, I think, why this case is so debated and remains to this day one of the most controversial cases out there. Yeah. So tonight, which is our first episode of the series, we're going to be looking at Annalisa's life leading up to her tragic death, giving you as much perspective as we can from what eyewitnesses said they saw unfold before them during her descent into a complete loss of control over her own body. So how'd your 4th of July go, man? Did you bring over the Blue Apron dishes, the spring farro salad, or the cast iron cornbread? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it was great as usual. I mean, those folks are always fun on the bun. And I actually didn't end up making those because my next Blue Apron shipment came with an even better recipe card. This one's for strawberry rhubarb crumble. Those other dishes sounded great, but anything strawberry rhubarb is not only a summertime tradition, but it's also a real crowd pleaser. I do love strawberry rhubarb pie. Strawberries and rhubarb just go really well together. <laughs> That's what the recipe card said. You know, I love food science, you know, the, the chemistry behind what makes certain ingredients and flavors go together, what happens during the cooking process, all that kind of stuff. And it's great that Blue Apron makes all that available with their printed cards or on their website. It's like we always say, Blue Apron not only feeds you and your family with delicious food, but it really does help you become a better cook. Because their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and you just get better as a home chef in the process. Well, yeah, well, we're all about learning over here. If you take, for example, that recipe card I was talking about, on the back, it explains why strawberries and rhubarb go so well together. It's all about balance and opposites attracting. So the sour balances out the sweet. And also, it's kind of like how a pinch of salt makes an apple pie taste sweeter. Strawberries and rhubarb also smell good together, which is an important part of great taste, and their textures, or mouthfeel, complement each other. Well, we hope you've enjoyed today's lecture on the dynamic duo of strawberries and rhubarb. But seriously, just go check out Blue Apron's website, and you'll get a clue as to why they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Better yet, just go to our special URL to check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. Oh, that is a better yet. Well, you'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, I'm Heather Olson, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Bilbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. There's a lot of people involved in this story, and we're going to cover some of the 
main characters right now, just to give you an overview. I don't expect you to remember this. We just wanted to put it out there for you so that subconsciously it's in the back of your mind. The first character, obviously, is Annalisa Michel, who is the girl at the center of this case. And she's the primary person that we're going to be talking about. We're also going to be talking about her mom and her dad. And her mom, confusingly, also named Anna Michel. Uh, so <laughs> well, she's, I think that, she's not an Annalisa, yeah. yeah. or maybe she is, but she's referred to as Anna. So if you hear Annalisa, we will always refer to the subject of the story as Annalisa and her mom as Anna, as, and those are two different people. Right. And I believe Annalisa was named, of course, after her mom, has taken part of her name as a tribute. Yes. And then there's also their dad, whose first name is Joseph Michel. And then the other major players are the Bishop of Würzburg, Dr. Joseph Stangl. Now, Dr. Stangl, who ultimately bore responsibility for approving the exorcism of Annalisa, suffered greatly in the years following her death. He actually wound up resigning his position with the church, and then not too long after that, he had a stroke, losing his ability to speak. And ultimately, he died in early April of 1979, just under three years after Annalisa's death. So, sad story there. The trial sort of tore him apart. There was also Father Alt from the Ettenberg Parish, who we'll be talking about, and Father Renz, who was the actual exorcist in the case. You'll also hear us mentioning Annalisa's boyfriend, Peter, who I have not seen his last name in print. I don't know if they're protecting him, but uh, I only saw him referred to as Peter. And then she had three younger sisters, but the one who figures most prominently in her story is Roswitha. And I say that, Forrest tells me I might be pronouncing that wrong, but I actually knew a Roswitha from Germany, and that's how she said it, at least here in America. So I'm going to stick with oh, it. Oh, I think it's just the, uh, sometimes it's, there's no H sound, it's just Roswitha. Um, that's probably right. I'm, I'm going to bet that's right. But I, the one I knew in North Carolina yeah. called herself Roswitha. No, go with that. No, I'm not going to, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes people who come over here, they kind of Americanize or yes. Anglicize it just to make it easy for us. So yeah, go with like that. Me. I say that's yes. right. So th those are the major players. There are other ones in the, there's also Thea Hine, who was a parishioner who I can't help but feel was a little bit sensationalistic. She, I guess, liked to claim that she discovered Annalisa's condition. So yeah. she's a little bit of a character that I'm not so comfortable with as I went through the story, her approach to Annalisa and how she was treated. No, was, well, I think, you know... Look, left a bad taste in my mouth, I guess. I don't think it's, there's anything awful or evil about her, but imagine the kind of character... This is exactly how I pictured her the person who leads all the church functions and the prayer groups and tells who should be the cookies and who should organize the bus trip and you know a like busybody. Is there yes. a German word for busybody? <laughs> I'm sure there, I'm, I'm going to bet yes, definitely yeah. there is. And it's probably pretty funny sounding, but yeah, yeah. no, you know, I think she's not terrible, but she is one of those persons who likes to get in there and organize things and, uh, I would say be in control or manipulate things, but definitely, yeah, she gets in there and stomps around and makes her presence known and tries yeah, to help, I guess. It's important to remember, I think, that even with all these people that want to help her, these are all different kinds of people. There is one thing that I did want to mention here, that this family was no stranger to tragedy before all this happened. Annalisa had an older sister, Marta, who died when she was eight due to complications in surgery removing a tumor from her kidney, so... Yes, 1956. Yeah, exactly. So the tragic loss for parents, just unimaginable. So they've already tasted a little bit of just family tragedy. Annalisa was four years old at that time, yeah. and Marta was very well-loved. And here's the fascinating thing about that. And just briefly, to give you a little background on where their family came from, they were connected to the lumber business in Klingenberg, 
her father, Joseph, owned and operated a sawmill, and Anna, her mother's father, also had a sawmill at a different area that she worked at in the office. So that would be Annalise's grandfather. So there's two sawmills in the family. And the girls, as a result, because everybody was working, were raised, for the most part, by their very religious grandmother, who gave them a significant amount of their catechismal education. But coming back to Marta, I did want to mention this, Forrest, and this is not mentioned in Goodman's book, but we found this in other sources. And by the way, tremendous amount of thanks to the ARC on this series. They have done so much amazing work. And I don't want to start naming names because I'll leave somebody out, but the ARC is really coming up to speed with these series. And the ARC is the Astonishing Research Corps, if you're just joining us. Right. Uh, this group of, of volunteer researchers, or as one of them, Marie Mayhew, <laughs> Her husband <laughs> calls it free search. Yes, well, <laughs> because it is from her husband's volunteer. point of view. What's but the we point are, of any of this? Yeah, we are super grateful to have everybody in there because it re- we really have dug up some amazing information on this case. Oh, I just want to quickly say regarding them yeah. is that we get the main story down, but it's their help in finding these extra bits of info that they're the ones who really add a lot of color to all this. They are. So thank you, Ark. We love you guys. Thank you for all your help. So coming back to Marta, one of the things that I did want to say about Marta was that she being the oldest daughter, the one who had died after the kidney operation at the age of eight, Annalisa was four at the time, she was actually born out of wedlock. And this is going to come up in the later parts of the series. That was considered a huge sin at the time. And Anna, when she got married, she actually had to wear a black veil on her wedding day from the shame of having Marta out of wedlock. So that information comes to us from an article written in 2005 that appeared in The Telegraph in the UK by journalist Elizabeth Day, which I I believe one of the ARC members dug up. But according to Miss Day, Annalisa, being a very sensitive and devout girl, eventually developed a desire to atone for her mom's sins and those of others. She even slept on the floor of her room at a young age before anything really serious started happening to atone for the sins of the drug addicts who she saw sleeping at the train station. So this idea of atonement, that's going to come up again, uh, especially when we start looking at the possible suggestions of why she might have been possessed. If you believe in possession, of course, this show is a classic if you believe in this and all. (laughs) Right. But but all of this stuff that's going on, regardless of your belief system, represents the belief system of millions upon millions of people on the planet Earth. So, oh, you, Right. No, no, you got to figure it this way. It's like, yeah, you might be in your uh, circle there where you and all your friends think the same, but over 90%, 95% maybe believe in a higher power and have some kind of religious, spiritual belief. You have to take that into consideration too when you think of these people. It's like, wow, they're really off the deep end here. It's like, well, no, if you grew up Catholic, this is pretty standard stuff here. However, like as Scott said, having this overriding feeling of atonement or needing to atone for others and sacrifice... These are huge themes throughout her life and with this case, and they're very important, no matter if you believe that sacrifice for others and atonement for, for sin is real, or you just think that she thought that way. So getting back to her family, just briefly, as we said, she had three sisters, Gertrude Maria, Barbara, and Roswitha Christine. And Roswitha, again, was the oldest of the three, and she's actually the one who wound up spending the most time taking care of Annalisa when she started having problems at school and and also at home. They seemed very close. All three of her sisters were healthier than she was as a kid. She actually was frequently sick, not unlike 
Orfeo Angelucci. Yeah, you, um, you make a good point there. It's kind of what Rich was talking about. Rich had him when we had him on the show. People that are often ill or plagued with some kind of illness, or especially in your childhood, are often the ones who have these very momentous grandiose experiences. Yes. And, and you wonder, like, does that precipitate the experience or does that make them more able to see and receive these kind of things? But I do want to point out there is a difference between Annalisa and Orfeo in that she ultimately grew a lot healthier. He never really grew out of his sickness. She did get healthier until all of this stuff started happening to her and then things did take a turn. But overall, she was a happy, normal, healthy young lady in her later life. It's just that when she was younger, she was getting sick a whole lot. And Forrest Point still stands there about Orfeo and just apparently the idea that you're more of a ready vessel for some kind of unusual event to happen when you're closer to the thin place, as you say, Forrest. <laughs> well, when, you know, when, not, when you're not doing well. <laughs> yeah, ex- well, yeah, there, there's that one aspect. Maybe you're closer to uh, checking out in some respect, but it's also... A little bit like getting back to Rich Adam is that some kind of tragedy or that kind of really deep emotional experience somehow opens the channels, as you will. You know what I'm saying? Like it to receive these kind of things because people that are happy and healthy, you go on about your life happy and healthy. You don't think about this stuff. You're, <laughs> as we said before, and people kind of laughed at it, it's the uh, it's the water skiing pyramid. You don't have a care in the world. <laughs> yes. you, you know, you're you're just enjoying your life, and so that's great because. Again, having these kinds of grand experiences like this, life-changing, it's in many ways a burden, even if they, you know, in Orfeo's case, might be really, really interesting. So at school age, Annalisa was pretty talented. She played the accordion. She took piano lessons. She also studied Latin, this is important, and took to it very well. Quoting her mother, Anna, in Goodman's book, she would take watch in hand and recite Latin vocabulary assignments with breathtaking speed. So she clearly was a smart girl, and her mom was convinced that she was going to become a school teacher, and Annalisa wanted to become a school teacher. She was brought up well-adjusted, according to Goodman, but others see this particular fact different. I've read a few competing points of view that say, oh, she was oppressed, or it was too religiously strict. However, when you read Goodman's book, everything is fine, and it's sort of like what we were talking about in the cold open when Forrest invokes the Henry Plummer story, because we had two books there that had very opposing points of view Coming from the same facts, right? Yeah, coming from the same facts. And that gets back to all these things. You really have to read multiple sources. But what we've taken in so far has not indicated that she had an unpleasant childhood in any way, really. No, it's it's, normal, strict Catholic upbringing, but not horrific by any stretch. Exactly. And then to expand on one thing you said, Scott, she enjoyed this. That was her personality. It's one thing if like you're an oppressive, strict religious family and you're getting your knuckles wrapped with rulers and and it's just really oppressive and you hate it and you run away. That's not the case here. She was that kind of person. That was her personality to time herself, give you know, reciting Latin exercises and the catechism, the religious study. She enjoyed this kind of thing. And she had just very simple pleasures, but she's also a very generous person. Like, yeah, she's always wanting to help others, as you could tell from being the teacher. And then when she started having her troubles, that's the taking on of the pain and the burden and the sins of others to help them. She's a very generous person. She just, nowadays, yeah, she might be seen as a little quirky because, yes, she seemed to be very shy. She was always described as very shy, but very intelligent and generous and very well-spoken. 
and very perceptive, very analytical. So up until about 16 or so, she'd been fine. She had no unusual problems. And then right before her 16th birthday, she had a blackout in the middle of a class. And that was the first time anything had happened to her. So that would be the first official event. She woke up and she kind of laughed it off with a friend. But later that evening, something happened that we've talked about a lot on this show. Yeah. She, she woke up in bed at midnight, unable to breathe. Something was pinning her down so hard that she actually wet the bed. She wanted to scream, but she couldn't speak. This lasted for over 15 minutes before finally subsiding. She actually didn't tell anybody about this. She cleared the bed and redid it. She skipped school the next day and told her mom just that she must have been really sick and that she soaked the bed through from sweat. So she wound up just kind of writing it off and forgetting about it, which is probably what most people do is, okay, that was weird. As we've mentioned on the show, I think it was during the Shadow People episode, we talked about something that is well-known called old hag syndrome. Yeah, and that one you actually do see an old hag at the end of your bed. Or sitting on your chest as well. So it's not something that hasn't happened to other people, but it was a particularly frightening event for her. And then a full year went by, and the same exact thing happened to Annalisa again in the middle of the night on August 24th, 1969. Now, the interesting, completely unrelated fact about that date was that this was within 48 hours of my birth. <laughs> so, <laughs> you mean in August 1969? Yeah, August 24th, 1969. I was born on the 26th, and uh, wow. this was happening to her uh, two days before yeah. I came onto this planet. After the second incident, her mom got really worried about her. They went up calling the family doctor, and he referred them to a neurologist in a Schaffenberg. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but this, that's the big town that a lot of this took place in because she actually wound up going to school there while, when she was in her later teens. So she would take the train there, and then eventually I got the impression that she was living there in a dorm. And she had a shared room at one point and later her own room as she got older. But anyway, so they went to see the family doctor there who had been their family doctor for a long, long time. His name was Dr. Siegfried Luthi, or Luthi, I really apologize to our German listeners for my pronunciations, <laughs> yeah. and all of those of you that speak German. I know we have several people in New York as well, who are all banging their heads against the wall, as I say every German word. Anyway, Dr. Luthi told Anna, Annalisa's mom, to keep this condition that she was having quiet, because it would be bad if word got out. So now you start to get this flavor of the political climate surrounding the idea of any sort of mental health issues, which is what they were suggesting that she had at that point. And the doctor is is saying, you know, we know that she wants to be a teacher. She's got to keep this under wraps. It would have a stigma for her, and it could affect her ability to get into the school that she wanted to go to to become a teacher. And that is important. That's a real critical blow for Annalisa. It's her dream to teach. And this ailment is now threatening to stand between her and her life's goal. So the most important takeaway from this visit, which was on August 27th, 1969, I was one day old, (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Luthi did a full exam of Annalisa, and at the criminal investigation after her death, he was on the record as saying that the EEG recorded on August 27th, 1969, showed a normal physiological alpha-type brain activity. 
He later said that based on what she'd been describing, she probably had a convulsive cerebral disease. But because there'd only been two events in a year, he said he didn't prescribe anything. He just wanted to observe her for a while. Now, the thing about this is there was a contradiction in the court records where there's another instance of him stating that he did prescribe something right out of the gate there. So we don't really know what happened. And it seemed like when the court case came down, a lot of people were just kind of saying whatever they could to cover their butts. But at that point, it seems like initially what Goodman thought in her book was that he hadn't prescribed anything. He's like, well, this is two events in a year. Let's just keep an eye on it for now. Conversely, he said also that he had prescribed the anticonvulsant drug known as Zentropil. And we'll talk about these different drugs and what they did in later parts of the series. So... Right after this visit and this second attack that she had in late August, she got super sick, came down with pleurisy, pneumonia, and a tuberculosis infection. Oh, and she was having all these problems in her lungs. And as if that's not bad enough, she got sent to a sanatorium for treatment because this facility also specialized in lung ailments and lung conditions. This completely isolated her from her friends, and she was essentially all alone in this facility, coming to grips with the idea that she may have some sort of psychological problem that was going to impede her life's goal of becoming a teacher. There's a good chance that she might be starting to get a little depressed about the big picture at this moment, but you also know at that stage in your life when you're that young, and I think in her case too, there's probably an overall sense of optimism because everybody who's that young thinks, oh, I'm going to be fine, I'm young, nothing can get me. But there's some indication that her trip to the sanatorium was pretty unpleasant. Not that she was mistreated, but just that it was very isolatory. You're basically in a hospital all day long. Yeah. Now, there's other girls there because she had made an acquaintance with some other um, patients. I think Monica Fichter yes. was one of them. And, and so what you get from them, though, is that, you know, what the picture of what she's like outside of her family and, and direct friends. And Monica said that, yes, she was kind of quiet and shy, but she often brought up religion and encouraged her to pray and suggested that she obtain some holy water from San Damiano. And Annalisa told Monica that she enjoyed visiting San Damiano, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but she wished she could spend more time there. So you do get a picture of her from her sanatorium mates or other girls that are staying there as well, that yes, she's religious and she is studious and friendly and all around a normal girl. On June 3rd, 1970, Annalisa was attacked again with the exact same problem as before. This was the third time, and this time, near the end of the attack, she actually managed to scream. Prior to this, she had not been able to make any vocalizations. She was at the sanatorium still, and the girls heard her screaming, and she wet the bed again, So, which is obviously embarrassing. Right, but she's claiming that there's actual pressure. Something's pressing down on pressing her down. thorax or, you know, her, her midsection and bladder causing her to wet the bed. Yes. And so after this, something very unusual happens. Within a few days of this attack, she had a very strange event occur. She was in the kitchen of the sanatorium, praying the rosary and looking out the window. And she had an overwhelming sense of beauty that just washed over her. She saw the mountains outside in a way that she had never seen them before. She prayed the Ave Maria, and the sweetness she felt inside her body washed over her when she was jolted out of her trance by the girls asking her what she was doing. 
She said, oh, I'm praying. What? What are you talking about? And they said that her hands, they were like, look at your hands. They look like claws. Why are they so misshapen and grotesque? You're holding them really weird. And she wasn't aware of that at all. She explained that they felt completely normal. And she had said that she felt so good that if the doctor was there right now, she would be immediately discharged. She felt that in this moment, she had been visited by Mary, the mother of God. And this is something that she winds up chasing as her story proceeds. She wants to get back to this moment. It's a real sense of euphoria. And I know the mental health professionals that are listening to the show right now are saying, okay, we're treading into bipolar territory here. We're not ignoring that fact. That's just, we're, we're going to talk about that stuff in our next episode and the one after that. But that is what's happening to her here. And you also can look at it within the context or the, or the framework of the possession and what she thought was going on with her body and that maybe this was a visitation from a positive source to give her uh, reinforcement in her faith. There's a lot of ways to interpret it. So yeah, what's interesting is that it sounds like, by definition, a moment of real spiritual religious ecstasy, which also, yeah, you could look at it psychologically that people that experience that, it's all kind of the same, it fits the same parameters, but it's all, you know, it's in your head, really, it's biochemistry. And from the spiritual side, it's like, no, that sounds like the real deal. But what's interesting here is that, yeah, it fits all the definitions of glorious sight, things being very bright and beautiful, of like a beautiful sound or of music playing or something. And also what's interesting here is that there is a very glorious smell. And usually when people have some kind of connection or vision even of the Virgin Mary, a lot of times it's roses are associated with her or beautiful smelling flowers. What comes with her and her visitation is a smell of uh, very pleasing flowers, something floral. Yes, and, and she smelled that that day in the yeah, kitchen. Yeah. And it's something that she latched onto, and she decided again in June of 1970, according to Goodman's book, that she was going to try and make this contact happen again with the Mother of God. Yeah, you want to bring that back into your life because it's so pleasant and uh, euphoric. But what's interesting here to me is the outward appearance uh, by the other girls. And I don't know if they were teasing her, it sounds yeah. like, but it's like, why do your hands look like claws? She didn't feel that way, but is, is that really what they were seeing? Something kind of ugly about this from the outside that's physical. So that's an interesting aspect. So as she's attempting to duplicate this experience, she's praying the rosary again and trying to get back to where she was in that moment. Something completely different happened. Suddenly, a huge, evil, grimacing face appeared before her. It flashed as quickly as lightning, and it was gone, but it scared her so bad that she put her rosary away. This is the first time that this happens. She's not really sure what she saw, but it's going to happen over and over. Anyway, so after all of this, she was able to return home finally from the sanatorium, but her family noticed a distinct difference in her behavior and disposition. She actually became really introverted and withdrawn. Yeah, her personality definitely changed after this stay. Yeah, so you, you have to start wondering what's going on there. Again, lots of possible explanations, but just something to keep track of. On August 11th, her EEG is checked again, and it shows completely normal. The important thing to understand about EEGs, though, is that it's a current state measurement. In, in terms of diagnosis for something like epilepsy, for example, it can tell you only if someone is in a non-convulsive status epilepticus. But if the test is not being conducted during an active seizure, it doesn't necessarily mean that an epileptic seizure can't have or hasn't ever occurred. At this stage, she would have been probably given an MRI, but that certainly was not something that was available 
at that point. But even an MRI, what's most handy with that is if you're actually experiencing something, then they can see the changes. So, right, it can't see into the past with her. It's not a diagnostic tool that can see scarring of uh, of brain tissue or, or nervous system tissue. It's a measurement right then, and right then it seems to be all systems go. She checks out. Yeah. So she's now been seeing a whole lot of doctors for a whole lot of issues, and she's starting to get sick of it. She's starting to get sick of the doctors, and they've been prescribing a variety of medications that are supposed to be helping her with these seizures that keep occurring. And they do happen, but they're usually kind of spread out. Sometimes they stopped for extremely long periods of time. Her EEGs continue to be normal. Lots of drugs have been tried, all to no effect really other than the side effects, which she hated. She said that all they did was make her tired and apathetic. Yeah, I I actually know, uh, have friends that have been on anti-seizure medicine, and they say it's really debilitating. I mean, it's all you can do to keep taking it because you don't feel like doing anything. It brings you down physically and with your energy level to such a state that, yeah, you're just, you you just feel really sluggish. And also it, it makes you a little depressed, which is kind of what happened with her. Yeah. Her experience at the sanatorium had been so awful, and all she could think about was how these doctors aren't helping her and how bad that experience was, and she's not really interested in continued treatments, although she does go to the doctors, but she winds up getting to a point where she's not telling them about the problem she's having that she perceives as being kind of spiritual in nature. So, for example, she would see the doctors and she'd say, oh, well, I have headaches, or I can't sleep, or my arm is sore or things like that, which she does not tell them about the demonic evil faces that she is still seeing regularly. She does not tell them about the spiritual side of what's happening to her because she feels like they really have no idea to deal with it. And she seems to think that they barely know how to deal with the medical stuff either at that point. And this is important because this creates a culture for her internally and I think also for her family that as things get more and more serious, that they decide that they're not really going to pursue getting a lot of medical help from traditional doctors when things start to take a turn, which they're going to do pretty soon here. And in fact, in the spring of 1973, Annalisa started hearing sounds in her room at home. These were like knocking sounds. And Anna, her mom, had not heard them at first and took her to the family doctor to have her ears checked, and they found absolutely nothing wrong with them. But as the sounds continued, the other girls in the house, her sisters, all began to hear them as well. They were described as, quote, like a chair falling over or someone thumping inside the wardrobe. Then they would be underneath the floor and then above the ceiling. Well, you know, you hear about that, you know, haunted hotels and, and people's uh, haunted rooms is that they'll hear footsteps, but they're above the ceiling and there's no room above the ceiling and there's no attic. So it's these knocking, rapping sounds coming from very unusual places and very distinct. Like she said, it's this is not just <laughs> light tamping by a squirrel or you know, actually pack rats will do that. That's how you can find it. You can actually tap on a, on a beam and they'll knock back. Right. But no, this is loud, knocking, thumping, rapping. And now, as you said, the sisters are hearing it too. Right. And that's a significant bit of information. You have to hang on to that. There's not a ton of it in this story, but this is a case of them experiencing something supernatural that is not just her. It's not just inside her head. This is something that the other girls in the family are hearing as well. And that's one of those things that becomes harder to explain away when you start to look at just the psychological reasons behind what's going on for her. 
And during this time, she is still seeing those faces, which I just mentioned, and they call them in German the Fratzen, which translates roughly as the grimaces. Yeah, if you, if and, you plug that into uh, Google Translate, it comes back as grimaces. So yeah, yeah it's, but it's I like feel scary. like it doesn't really translate. I feel like it's no. one of those words that just needs to be Fratzen. <laughs> like Schadenfreude. You can understand the idea in American words, but the German phrase itself, like French, déjà vu, yes. it's, just, it's just so much better there. But yes, she's seeing these, like people making monster faces, like little kids when they make horrible grimacing faces. That's what's flashing into her mind's eye. Yes. And she's also seeing that they have devil horns. And in some cases, the faces are so scary, she refuses to even describe them. Yeah, that's so, another interesting aspect that you're bringing up here. Maybe you can say like, well, if it's just, it's mental, it's so frightening that your own mind is blocking being able to visualize them very well, or you're making that up so you can't really describe them because your imagination isn't that fertile. But we've also had some cases of people tell us personally, at least I have, with stories where they've had this either really bizarre kind of a, a waking dream of sorts or a very vivid dream that's recurring. It's not even something horrible. It could be something... Uh, like a recurring animal that you're seeing, but you go to draw it and you can't. And it's really hard to explain, but it's like, I can't. These are people who are artists yeah. and they can't draw it. And they try several times and the picture of the animal will come out different and not accurate according to their memory every time. It's different every time. So there's something weird about that. She's having trouble explaining what these faces look like to the priest now that she's talking to, because now she's kind of moving away from talking about that to regular doctors. Because of course, when you mention that kind of thing to people who work in the spirit realm, it does now start to sound a little crazy. Right. Her mom and dad are trying to figure out, well, you know what, maybe there's something we can do to help her out. We're going to take her to a holy shrine. So they decide that they're going to transport her to the mother of God in San Damiano, which is the site of a, a miracle, theoretically, that's not yet been recognized by the church. And Annalisa had a very specific experience here, which I want to quote from Goodman's book on. I believe it was according to her father who was there. She was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said that the soil burned like fire and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the little garden and then she had to turn back. My will is not my own. Someone else is manipulating me, she said. So she had this experience at this religious site that she couldn't go into it. She couldn't deal with it. And this is the beginning of a reaction that she's having to sacred sites and sacred objects, and that's going to come up again. But, And that's when some really unusual stuff happens. In fact, I would label this as a paranormal event, regardless of where you come down in the big picture of Annalisa's story. Some of this stuff is really crazy. You'll find out in a minute. But the, the point is that she was there with her father and also with a character who we mentioned earlier in the show, Thea Hine. Right, and Forrest, I guess maybe you should talk a little bit about this trip back from the shrine. Yeah, so Annalisa's father, Joseph, or Joseph, if you're an American, would go on these trips, and Thea would sponsor and kind of give these guided trips to San Damiano for the prayer group and her the parishioners that were going to the same church. So that's what this trip was, basically a little pilgrimage. And while you're there, you can buy a medallion, 
or a medal, like a necklace, to wear around your neck as kind of a souvenir. But it's also like a little bit of like a St. Christopher's medal. There's a bit of a spiritual and religious significance to it. And probably some of the income from that goes to supporting maintenance of the shrine. Exactly. And, and yeah. It's like dealing when you, with all the people are coming and going all the time. So. Right. It's like when you buy a, a candle or something to light and you put some alms in the box there, that goes into the cost of running the place. So they had this very strange experience, or at least Annalisa did, trying to get into the church and not being able to. She couldn't look at the holy pictures or images of Jesus were too bright and burning for her to even look at, according to her. So now they're wrapping this up. They're getting back on the bus, and some very strange things happen here, which you could attribute to just crazy erratic behavior, but a couple of things that really give you some pause here— so her father, Yosef, had bought her a medallion to wear, you know, just a little souvenir, something a nice dad would do. But she said she couldn't wear it because it felt so heavy and oppressive around her neck that it was actually preventing her from breathing properly. It was causing labored breathing, and it just felt like it was crushing her chest. So she couldn't wear it. And then her attitude starts to change, and her personality starts to change, and it gets really aggressive and weird. Now, Thea had a medallion on that she was wearing, but it was underneath her dress, so it was kind of tucked inside. Annalisa grabbed the chain of the medallion from the outside, from the outside of the clothing, and ripped it and basically tore it off Thea's neck. Okay, that's kind of strange, but as they're getting on the bus, and I think either as they're in the process of getting on the bus or they're already on the bus, she knocks Thea down to the ground. Not an accident. And this is a, a shy, mild-mannered girl, very well-behaved, great manners, and now people are just kind of flabbergasted. They don't know what to say. And on the whole trip back, she's mocking Thea using improper language, which is shocking to these people. They'd never heard her say anything like that. Yeah, and she was also doing it in, in kind of a man's voice. It was like her yes. voice had shifted. Yeah, that was also freaking people out, is that it was, a, it was suddenly now a deep man's voice. Those people had never heard that come out of her. The other thing coming out of her, apparently, was this really awful stench of what was described as either feces or burning feces or just something really bad burning. And that theme comes up over and over again, that claim that it's coming out of her or that that stench would appear in a room that she'd just been in. Like she would leave a room, you can go in there and, and you would smell that really heavily oppressive and disgusting smell. And by the way, there is no evidence. The book gets very specific. There's some details that we're leaving out out of respect for her, I guess for me, they're almost too personal to be putting in a podcast. If you read some of the books that we've read, then you can read about them. But what we can tell you is that they would indicate if there were bodily function issues, they would have said it clearly in the book. And there is no indication that there were. She was not having incontinence issues or any <laughs> right. other kind of problems that would contribute to this. So exactly. what we're looking at here is possibly a paranormal situation where you can say what you want about the psychological or possible medical issues that could lead to all of this type of behavior. And there are plenty of things that she has in common that would line up with a lot of those diagnoses. And we'll talk about them more in, in the ongoing series. But right now we're talking about something that is ostensibly unexplainable. And it's more than just happening in her mind. This is something that lots of people are personally witnessing or, or personally smelling in her presence. And that is an outside indicator that something is going on with her, that it's not exclusively internal. Exactly. Because people could say, like, to put it crassly, like she pooped her pants. But you can tell that when you're near somebody, whether you're wearing pants or a dress, it's obvious. And no one had seen that. 
The other thing that's really interesting, and again, for me, out of all of these incidents of describing really estranged, aggressive, bizarre behavior, is that that's probably the most paranormal element. Yeah, maybe you could you could fake a deep voice and you just started your medications or your condition is making you act, you know, it's changing your personality and you're really aggressive now. And that's all explainable. But this stench, which is often associated with paranormal events, especially ones that involve dark spiritual things, demonic, is that there's a smell involved. There's a book, the gentleman that wrote about the special foods and drinks that people claim to have imbibed when visited upon by extraterrestrials and uh, other dimensional beings, that that's what happens. There's also smells involved. And, and we did mention this, that usually it's kind of a burning or sulfurous smell or brimstone, something literally hellish. And that's what you're seeing here. Now, what's interesting about that is that this smell was smelt by other people when they just brought up her name and started talking about her case. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit here from a distance without even having met her first. So that's really strange. Now this stench is traveling over time and space. And so what's interesting, though, despite all the abusive behavior towards Thea, knocking her down, ripping her metal, insulting her, mocking her, making fun of her on the bus trip back, they actually became very close friends. And Annalisa thought that Thea was somebody that she could confide in apart from her mother. And she would confide in her things like, well, I didn't really take my medication today. It's dragging me down so much. I, it's just horrible. So they actually became pretty close, even though they weren't close in age. She became a very close friend of Annalise's, and she would tell her some of her deepest, darkest thoughts. So that's why Thea is a pretty good source to go to as far as what's happening with her behaviorally and kind of tracking her, um, you know, these events that are happening. Yeah, that's fascinating. Oh, and by the way, just to for our listeners, the book that Forrest is talking about is called The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural scents, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas. <laughs> and it's written by uh, Joshua Cutchin. And you can find a link to it actually on the Orfeo Angelucci episode in our uh, show notes there at our website. Yeah, really fun books. He's a great guy. He's communicated with us a little bit on Twitter, I think, and Rich as well. And then his other book that we were talking about as far as uh, the most delicious drinks you'd ever had, the most delightful foods offered to you by these otherworldly beings. The book is called A Trojan Feast, I believe. Yes. A ton of fun and, and great reads. So go check them out. Yeah. That's the culmination of events that is associated with that trip to San Damiano. It's a fascinating story. And again, the odor, the issues, the stenches. And also, again, when we were talking about the fecal matter, it's frequently described as burning, which is another thing that when <clears throat> you have an accident, it, it doesn't smell like it's burning. <laughs> like it depends it's, on what you ate. you've really got to get to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, or as Richard Pryor uh, says, you need to go to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. That ties in with you know, I mean, it's so literal. It's burning hell. It's so bad that it's it's making people wretch. And again, it's always described, as far as we've seen in the books, as described in this combination of either pure fecal matter or some kind of open sewer or burning feces or just burning, something really like burning hair, just something really bad. Not, you know, not like a nice log fire or something. It's just really acrid and otherworldly. So... So again, you could gold chalk that up, the other stuff as far as like, you know, knocking her down, making fun of her, like that's just personality tweaks based on either medication that's not working right or some brain chemistry changes that are happening that, you know, are affecting her mood and her behavior. But when you have smells traveling over distances and it's consistently horrible like this, that makes you wonder. 
So, reading about Annalisa's case and the Rituale Romanum of 1614 started me thinking about the Loudon possessions of 1634 and how the authorities handle and interpret bizarre incidents. You know, the longer I know you, the the less idea I have how your brain works. (laughs) (laughs) Me either, but hear me out. Okay, so then I started thinking about what the church and state thought about other seemingly spiritual incursions into our world, like the Black Death. I have no idea where you're going with this. The Black Death was biological in cause. Yeah, but the authorities didn't know that then. A lot of people at the time thought it was punishment from God for being wicked. All right, why don't you elaborate on that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the leading authority during the mid-14th century was the medical faculty at the University of Paris. Now, King Philip VI charged them with finding out the cause of the plague. So they come up with a treatise that starts off grand and gets specific. Quote, We say that the distant and first cause of this pestilence was and is the configuration of the heavens, unquote. So they knew then that on March 20th of 1345, there was a conjunction of three planets in Aquarius. Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And this conjunction somehow caused a, quote, deadly corruption of the air around us, unquote. Soon after 1345, plague. So, you know, remember back then, astrology and astronomy were basically the same field. So the best minds of the days, they saw a connection. And the direct or near cause is that the pure air everyone breathes gets infected by these noxious vapors and spread about through gusts of wind. You're getting all this from the Great Courses Plus series, The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague, right? (laughs) Of course I am. What do you think I have time to peruse 14th century medical treatises? Uh, Wouldn't surprise me, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But it's like I always say, The Great Courses Plus is like your own personal college, staffed with your own personal professors. I will say, The Great Courses Plus is one of the best and most entertaining resources we've ever come across. And we want you to sign up and experience it too for a whole unlimited month for free. Just go to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. All right, so what does all this have to do with possession? Well, when it comes to the, quote, authorities, unquote, understanding and dealing with demonic possession, they might as well be in the Middle Ages. Aha. All right, so one more time, start your free month today by signing up with our special URL. Again, it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. All right, will you stop saying quote, unquote, please? (laughs) Will do, unquote. Hi, I'm Carl Decay. This is Astonishing Legends. Um, I think it's in the fridge. Sorry about that. Let's get back to the show. All right, so now it's time to talk about some of the more pivotal figures in this case. And one of the guys who was there or involved up until the very end was a priest known as Father Alt. But the way that we get to Father Alt is a little bit convoluted. We're going to try and sum it up here. It was Thea Hine that recommended the first priest that they needed to go talk to about the possibility of of getting spiritual help, right? Well, she recommended they see Father Habiger. And, you know, that's just somebody that Thea knows. She was very involved with the church, of course. And she, like we said, one of those kind of uh, social busybodies. She knows, seems to know everybody. But she suggested that Yosef and Anna take Annalisa to go see the priest, just to meet and see what he has to say. And there's something that I want to point out here, at least, that people may have the misconception that, you know, the church, especially the Catholic church and priests, really want to jump to the first conclusion of, like, we got to perform an exorcism. That's not the case. 
they are very hesitant to do this, not only because of this case, which happened actually, which changed a lot of the attitudes of the church because of the outcome of the trial, but even before that, to the Middle Ages, you had to fit a set prescribed list of actions and you know, recorded incidents of the possessed person before they would even consider it. So I want to just dispel the myth that, like, oh, here's another chance for the church to jump in there and prove their point that the devil is real and you need them and and that's why they're doing this. That's never been the case as far as we've read here. No, and they they also have legitimate concerns, and nowadays, legally and liability-wise, but even back then from a, a psychological liability, in that they don't need to be sending a priest in to help someone that they think clearly has a mental health issue. Well, exactly. No, the first thing they suggest is you need to go see a doctor because they aren't doctors. These are very well-educated people, extremely well-educated people, and they a lot of them actually get medical degrees. There's a lot of priests that and Jesuits that have degrees in psychology and psychiatry. So they really actually take the first step of like, you need to talk to your doctor. And in Annalisa's case, Thea suggested they go see Father Hobbinger. Well, he, you know, has a meeting with her. Father Roth sits in on it just to observe. So there's actually two priests there, and he found her to be like, well, she's very shy. She's extremely religious. That's nice. But she's not exhibiting any examples of possession, at least during this meeting. Even though they described to her the trip to San Damiano, which all these weird things happen. So he basically, just Father Habigar said, like, you should see a neurologist. That's really their, your first step. And they told her, like, no, we've seen Dr. Luthi. And he said he really couldn't help us. So that's why we're turning to the church. So the first few priests they meet, that's the result that they're getting, is that they're describing these weird things that are happening, not only on this trip, but at home, because at home she's exhibiting very strange behavior, aversion to rel- religious objects, aggressive behavior, which is not her normal personality of course, and also this horrible burning feces stench that occurs when she's in the room and then lingers for a long time, even when she's left the room. So even then they're describing this to these priests and they're like, yeah, still, I can't see anything here. So they're taking it very matter of factly and telling the family they need to go get medical help. You know, I mean, they're getting totally shut out, but that's always the first suggestion. So I, anyway, I just want to make that picture clear is that, yeah, they just don't jump to Let's get out the holy water and start saying the incantations right away. They first look at it as a medical problem. Right. So one of the things that Forrest had said was that in one of these meetings, there was a father sitting in. He was actually just observing named Father Roth. And Father Roth became interested in the case because he had a friend, another priest named Ernst Alt, Father Alt. And Father Alt was kind of the perfect guy for this case because He himself, believe it or not, had a fascination with ESP. And this is is what's really interesting to me. And he had written a thesis, believe it or not, as a priest, entitled, Is There a Parapsychological and Biological Basis to Religious Experience? So you can see why Roth might have thought, oh, Alt's going to be all over this. This is great. And also there's a certain amount of attraction to a case like this for somebody like Father Alt, who's trying to make connections between religious experiences and ESP and psychic relationships. And the other thing about Father Alt is that he kind of portrays himself as being an empath, as being somewhat uh, clairvoyant, wouldn't you say, for us? Well, he, he was known for that. Somewhat psychic, I guess, more correctly, maybe an empath, that he would pick up yes. impressions. And it was not like, you know, he had full-blown psychic channeling where he starts talking in the person's voice. 
But he was known to be very empathetic in that way, where he would pick up feelings and some emotions about something that they were discussing or studying. So yeah, that's why they contacted him. And as he described in a letter, to maybe read the letters from these people before even meeting them and just see if he can get any kind of an impression about them. Like, what's going on here? And so, again, I wouldn't say, you know, he's not a fortune teller. Yeah. He's not, uh, you know, the crystal ball kind of guy. He gets these impressions, and that happens with some people, you know. Yeah, and and for some of our listeners, I'm sure it's going to be a red flag, but we want to remind you to keep an open mind as you evaluate the circumstances of this case, because there's a lot of things that Father Ald experienced while he was working with Annalisa and her family that kind of defy explanation. So just remember not to be too dismissive, but keep track of what you choose to accept as evidence that supports your personal hypothesis and what you choose to reject because of outright disbelief, because it taints your ability to take in the big picture in a situation like this. And Forrest, when we were doing research for the show, you had referenced a commencement speech that the author, uh, David Foster Wallace, had made. Yeah, um, actually, there was a big old long string of uh, discussions going back and forth on Twitter between some of our uh, ARC members and uh, the Not Alone podcast and some other uh, folks that were chiming in. And it was just a kind of a fun uh, exchange going back and forth. And one of our ARC researchers, Associates, Rob Christofferson, very well read. He's the one who kind of gave us some of these books as well that I think freaked him out too much and he had to get rid of them. But in the discussion, it came up, Rob was saying, you have to be cognizant and mindful and careful about what you think. Be cautious about your thoughts. That gets into the whole thing, thoughts are things, and Dr. Yamoto and, and the emotion of water, and that the things that you conjure in your mind can affect your personality and your reality. So he posted a clip, which is David Foster Wallace, the author, giving a commencement speech at Kenyon College back in 2005. And I don't know if he called it that, but basically the commencement speech is, this is water. And the whole idea is based on a kind of a little story here where there's two younger fish that swim up to an older fish, and the older fish says, hey, fellas, how's the water? And the two younger fish just kind of look at each other quizzically and they swim on. And then one turns to the other and says, what the heck is water? <laughs> the point being is that you are so immersed in your daily life. And it's a human nature to be self-centered. Everything you know about your experience is centered from you. What's in front of you, what's behind you, all around you. That's what you know. That's your experience. And that's what you naturally base your opinions on and your thinking but you're not seeing the water that's all around you. So like to the fish, they don't even know what that is. It's just there. They don't even consider it. So the idea, as David Foster Wallace says, is that be mindful of what you think about. Get out of this default nature of ours to be self-centered and, most importantly, the arrogance of believing that you have all the answers already. You know, much like a child does. Like, well, I got this all figured out. And then you as the adult or the parent, like, no, you don't. You still need to listen to your dad or your mom because we know more than you. So what happens is Father Roth decides he's going to ask Father Alt to tune in to these guys. And Forrest, you have to tell me in a minute if this sounds like remote viewing to you because it no. does to me. Okay. I'm, there's literally nothing happening here other than Father Roth is just saying, I want you to think about these folks who, by the way, are about, I think, 60 miles away, 62 miles away. So they're not people that Roth has met before or is going to see around town. And so as he's focusing in or tuning in on Annalisa Michelle and her family, he said the following... Suddenly, I was able to describe the entire family, father, mother, sisters, the grandmother, something I could not possibly know since I had never seen them. 
Later, all of this could be verified. As to Annalisa, I felt an enormous radiation that originated from her neck, or rather, from her thyroid and her head. I did not detect any illness. This, of course, did not permit any conclusions as to whether she was possessed or not. Two days later, a fellow priest who was going to take charge of the case visited me. He handed me two letters, one written by Mother Michelle, the other by Annalisa. I was unable to read them because all of a sudden I became so nauseated that I thought at any moment I was going to faint. So that's from uh, Felicitas Goodman's book, The Exorcism of Annalisa Michelle. That's on page 45 of her book. Now, he goes on to explain this did not in any way make it clear that this was a case of possession. These were just feelings he was having. And of course, I don't know, does this qualify as remote viewing to you? Is he a remote viewer? <laughs> well, to be clear, remote viewing is a technique. By the way, I'm asking for this because he has taken a class from Laurie Williams, which I did. I'm taking in September. <laughs> oh, but, it was, so it was, he, between the two of us, yeah. he's, the, he's the more experienced. The, he took the, the basic very class, beginning. to be clear. Yeah, yes. basically it's like I read the back page of a manual. <laughs> and like, yes, I'm an expert. <laughs> no, I, it's just awesome. Undescribable how, how much fun and, and how fascinating it was. But I have a, a very basic, very, very basic understanding. This is a lifelong pursuit and practice. This is how it's explained. Believe it or not, you sitting there, Mr. Skeptic or Mrs. Skeptic or Ms., you may not think you have any psychic ability at all. And we've mentioned this before. But when the thought comes into your head, the phone's going to ring for a flash and you know who it is. And then the phone rings, and it's the person who's on the other line, and you're correct. That's a tiny bit of a psychic moment there. And we all Or Amazing it. Randy would just say it's a uh, coincidence. You guessed, yeah. So, like, you could do the blind study here where you didn't know the phone was going to ring. You just, the thought flashed in your head. Well, you can dismiss that as well. But the idea is that we are all a little bit psychic, but it's like singing. Everybody can sing. Some are just really bad at it, and some people have a natural ability even before having lessons. And then a lot of people with lessons get really good. Well, that's what remote viewing is. It's a technique that you can practice. It's a way of cataloging. And I believe as Ingo Swan, one of the fathers of the remote viewing technique said, it's a reporting and interviewing methodology. That's all that that is. And what's funny is that people who say, I, I, nobody can do this and you can't record it. They're often the people that do it the best <laughs> and they amaze themselves because they're coming into it blank. They have no preconceived notions about it. And it's like I said, it's just a technique. So in the case of Father Alt, I wouldn't say that he's remote viewing, but the results can be similar. You get uh, some impressions. And then I guess what Father Alt would be describing is kind of like a biolocation, like suddenly he was there in front of her and he, he could describe the whole family. Well, that's a kind of a different thing. That's like when you biolocate, you're actually in the location and can describe it. You can look around kind of and describe what's all around you. And that is kind of an aspect, I believe, of, of remote viewing. But Father Alt really is kind of just getting psychic impressions. And one small thing I want to mention here is that he talked about this great light or great energy radiating from her throat. That reminded me of the throat chakra, or as they call it in Sanskrit, the Vishuddha, which is the point of communication between your head and your body. It has some other attributes as well. But anyway, just struck me is that, not that he's making that connection, but that it's somehow he's locking into communication with the essence of Annalisa and getting these impressions. But yeah, when he read the letters, did he got really nauseated that he almost fainted, right? Yeah. And then he actually, when he went to mass that night, he said the following, this is also from Goodman's book, I was mentally prepared for the transubstantiation and also included that as yet unknown girl in the sacrifice. All of a sudden, something hit me in the back. The air turned cold, and at the same time, there was an intense stench as though something were burning. 
I had to lean against the altar. With great effort, and only by dint of considerable concentration, was I able to speak the rest of the text. I felt deeply distressed, as if a negative force were surrounding me, which, however, aside from vexing me, could inflict no real harm. So then after that night, after Mass, when he got back home, he had all manner of strange problems. He couldn't sleep. He took a sleeping pill, and it was one that he took regularly, and it usually helped him, but he still couldn't sleep. And he said his apartment was filled with all these smells, like burning dung, open sewer, smells changing. And he described them as literally as infernal. Now, at this point, he's praying, trying to, to get past all this. He spoke an exorcism by his own words, but it didn't help. Then he called out to Father Pio for help, and the first time he did that, nothing happened. And here's where we're going to go into a little bit of a tangent, and that's about <laughs> tangent Father <alert>. Pio. Tangent <laughs> alert, yes. Yeah. Padre Pio, this is a fascinating guy. He was a member of the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin. Now, he passed away during Annalise's lifetime in 1968, but he was considered holy by the Roman Church even when he was still alive. He's described as a mystic and a priest, and most significantly with regard to this case, a stigmatist having exhibited the signs of the stigmata for most of his life. Here's a definition of what that is. Some of you may already know, but for those of you that don't, this is from catholic.org. Stigmata, singular stigma, is a term used by members of the Christian faith to describe bodily marks, sores, or sensations of pain in locations corresponding to the crucifixion wounds of Jesus Christ, such as the hands, wrist, and feet. The term originates from the line at the end of St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Stigmata is the plural of the Greek word stigma, meaning a mark, tattoo, or brand, such as might have been used for identification of an animal or slave. An individual bearing stigmata is referred to as a stigmatic or a stigmatist. St. Francis of Assisi was the first recorded stigmatic in Christian history. For over 50 years, Padre Pio of Pietrelcina of the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin reported stigmata, which were studied by several 20th century physicians whose independence from the church is not known. The observations were reportedly unexplainable and the wounds never became infected. So St. Padre Pio's stigmatism is controversial to this day, and it probably could be its own episode, but we haven't got time for that now. The reality <laughs> is that he was made a saint by the church on June 16th of 2002. So, and we have some information on him. Pope Paul VI said to the superiors of the Capuchin order about Padre Pio in 1971, he said the following, Look what fame he had, what a worldwide following gathered around him. But why? Perhaps because he was a philosopher? Because he was wise? Because he had resources at his disposal? Because he said mass humbly, heard confessions from dawn to dusk, and was, it is not easy to say it, one who bore the wounds of our Lord. He was a man of prayer and suffering. All right, so where were we? <laughs> I wanted to point out who that was. Father Alt had called out to him, and the first time he did, nothing was helping with the odors and the problems he was having in his apartment. But then he called out to him again and, quote, suddenly my room was filled with such an intense fragrance of violets that I thought I had dumped aftershave lotion on my pajamas. <laughs> Strangely, <laughs> yeah. at the same time, I stopped perspiring and my body felt warm. It was only at this point that Father Alt was able to sleep that night, the night of his first introduction to Annalisa Michel's case, whom he hadn't even met nor seen in person yet. The next day, when he retold the events of what happened in his apartment that night to a bunch of his fellow priests, that same strange, stench-like smell recurred. He said, quote, their entire parish house smelled as though of burning. 
So, and he said, he, he went on to say, and I, I don't have this here written down, but I know that he went on to say that all the windows were open as well. Right. Yeah. So all this left Father Alt feeling great compassion for Annalisa. He had personally experienced something that he felt was part of her experience, and he wanted to help her. He described her in his testimony as a tormented young girl for whom one could not help but feel sorry. Um, again, that's from Goodman's book on page 48. All right, so now it's 1973, and Annalisa has returned to school. She's been through a lot, and she's trying real hard to continue her studies. She has a lot of heart, and she will not give up on her work. She really, really wants to teach someday. That's her dream. And at times during her trials and tribulations, when she's unable to write due to convulsions or partial paralysis, she actually winds up dictating her thesis to her friends who then write it down for her, which made me feel really bad for her because yeah. she's, she's, I mean, seriously, she's fighting a, an uphill battle and just trying to just live a normal life. And these issues are continuing to plague her. Well, so, it's, it's one of those cases, if you have it or, you know, people that do, it's where the affliction, whatever, is tremendously crushing and draining and the medication to fix it is also depressing, crushing and yes. draining. And so there's no real great solution all around. Yeah, it's really rough. But on the plus side, during this time, she actually meets a boy named Peter, and they become boyfriend and girlfriend. And he is super enamored with her. Even though she tries to warn him away, he refuses, and he ultimately winds up staying by her side all the way up till the night that she passed away. He was a great guy. So, However, this still doesn't prevent her from becoming depressed and withdrawn. And, you know, people wonder about the depression here. I do as well. And there you go. It explains a lot of symptoms, but does it? The question for me when I think about her depression and her depressive issues is, did it come on first or was it a result of what she'd already been facing, which is something we'll talk about as we look into the later episodes here. But it seemed to me, just from Goodman's book anyway, that she had not been battling depression until all of this stuff started. So I don't know if there's a relationship specifically between depression and the onset of these other symptoms that she's having. Goodman wrote that Peter was able to lift her spirits at times, though, and they went dancing and bowling together. And Annalisa's friend said that she had become lively and was acting, quote, just like any other girl who was in love, unquote. So the details of this roller coaster that she was on emotionally, it just makes you feel so bad for her. And I, I guess some of you might be thinking, oh, well, this sounds a little bit like bipolar disorder. And again, we'll get to that later in the series and the reasons it may or may not have been a contributing factor because she was having these ups and downs. But I guess at one point she did apparently say to Peter, I often get terribly depressed and I'm not good company for anybody. To which he replied, everybody gets depressed sometimes. And she said back to him, with me, it's different. It lasts. Again, that's from uh, The Exorcism of Annalisa Michelle by right. Felicitas Goodman. Annalisa here is she has excellent analytical capabilities. Like she was, you know, she's a great student. She's able to describe things very clearly and with good thought processes. What Peter's saying is that, yeah, we all get depressed. We get sad and get the blues. And she's saying this is different. What she's hinting at is that there might be some other factors at play. I think that's kind of what's happening in her head, that yes, some of the the medication, the anticonvulsants that were being prescribed to her are making her lethargic and with very low energy and depressed, but there's something else also happening here. And she kind of stopped talking a lot about the demonic aspects with a lot of people after, you know, having gone to the neurologist and describing seeing demonic faces. At one point, she stopped that, and she never really spoke about that again to the general public or just people who weren't Thea or her immediate family, I think. so. Yeah, and we mentioned it earlier in the show, but she said 
that she felt like they couldn't help with that. They had no idea what they were doing, and there was no point in sharing that aspect of it that she saw as a spiritual affliction. So I just think it's interesting. So she goes on to tell Peter that she's trying to express what's happening here without getting into freaking people out with faces of demons and burning feces and all that, that she is starting to feel more and more empty inside, that she couldn't feel any love at all, and that basically she was numb to emotions. Or something, some exterior exerting unknown compelling force, you could say, is zapping her of her humanity in a way, of her emotional state and her ego, and that she couldn't feel emotions like that anymore, like love. But true blue guy, he sticks with her. He does. And she continued going to all these doctors. It wasn't like she just wasn't seeing them anymore, by the way. It's not a picture we want to paint either. She kept seeing all these doctors. They were prescribing a whole host of medications, including uh, Delantin, which was supposed to help with the seizures. And like you said, Forrest, that has these horrible side effects. And it hadn't reduced them. So then they switched her to something called Tegretol. And uh, we'll talk about these medications later in the series. Again, none of them were working great. The Tegretol does wind up helping her a little bit. We'll talk about that in a second. But she told doctors of the smells she had experienced. And one of the doctors, a Dr. Schleip, said those were, quote, psychomotor seizures. And this is the thing about that. If you're going to say that about the smells, then that's going to indicate that all the following people had psychomotor seizures because they all had experienced the smells. That would be other members of Annalisa's family, all the people on the bus from the shrine at San Damiano, Father Alt, Father Alt's fellow priest in their parish when he relayed the story to them, and Father Renz, who winds up being the exorcist, and Peter during the exorcism rites. Also, when Father Roth, they're taking a walk one evening after Father Alt has his main shocking kind of intrusion into his psyche, you could say. He's walking on an evening walk with Father Roth, his friend who kind of introduced him to the case, and they both start smelling this thing immediately, just the two of them. So Yes, exactly. Again, yeah, you could say like that explains it. You know, the strange things happen. You know, they say when, when uh, an older person has a stroke, they can smell burning toast. You get weird smells in your head. It's just misfiring uh, synapses. But then, like you said, Scott, everyone's having the same thing. Right. And she's continuing to see the fratzen, the grimacing evil faces that are flashing into her mind's eye over and over. She tells doctors sometimes when she does decide to mention them, which she doesn't always, but she winds up discontinuing that. But initially she tells them they appear out of nowhere and it doesn't matter what she's doing at that moment. And she said they're so frightening. As we said before, she refused to describe what they actually look like. She said that sometimes they are vague, like shadows, which made me think of shadow people. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, and other times they're completely clear. And she was constantly self-analyzing. She's a very intelligent girl. All her friends are concerned about her. Peter's concerned about her. She's analyzing all the possible causes of what's going on. Peter suggested, well, maybe you secretly hate your parents or you have some friends that have made you feel worthless. And she stated clearly None of that was true. Actually quoting her, she said, you must be nuts. My parents are nice people. Difficult sometimes, but nice. I love them. And that's out of Goodman's book on page 55. Yeah. Of course, here at Astonishing Legends, we fully acknowledge that clinical depression is chemical in nature and doesn't necessarily require an outside source for inspiration. We're just merely relaying how she personally approached her own self-evaluation at the time. And, you know, I have members of my own family suffer from depression. What I'm saying is we clearly are stating you don't necessarily have to have a seed. It doesn't have to be anything wrong. You could be having the best life ever and you're depressed. But she's clearly stating that there wasn't necessarily anything that she was latching onto in terms of something that would make her feel depressed independent of that. I may be jumping the gun here, but I don't think there was any family trait 
of severe depression, was there? No, there's not a history of it anyway that I read about. In, in yeah, me either. I just so far. Right. I just want to confirm that with you because I didn't read that either. And yeah. uh, the other thing is that she had never had a, a medical history of that either, or I guess what right. they would call the, the prehistory. She had never had any instance of that. And again, that doesn't say that can happen because sometimes that does come on in a person's life, especially, you know, at her age when you're coming into puberty and your biochemistry is changing, things change within your body. That can happen. It can come on. But we wanted to rule out, though, that that's not a, an ongoing medical history with her or her family. And so it's yes. very out of character. So when they see these strange and severe personality disorder changes, it's very disconcerting to everybody. And of course, you know, mostly her, you know, her parents, because this is not the daughter we know. Right. And like I said a second ago, she actually did eventually acknowledge that the new medication, the Tegretol, was helping her a little bit. She returned to playing piano and playing tennis, but she also said that she felt her problem is clearly a condition, not a depression, and, and stated that she couldn't talk to her friends anymore because they, quote, lived on a different plane than she did. So oh, that's interesting. she's starting to feel really disconnected. And one of the things she describes is looking at her life from a whole. Forrest, you haven't seen the movie Get Out, have you? Boy, I've, you're going to have to be more specific. I, oh, well, this, <laughs> is, not from um, the, uh, this is a film that just came out. Uh, oh, directed yes. By yeah. Jordan Peele. That, yes, no. Uh, I, took the World by Storm, did exceptionally well, actually. One of the first films to do, I think, well over a hundred million from a black director. So, and he's, yes. he's a friend of my wife's. So, no, I, I have not seen it myself, but I, I've certainly heard of it. And, and uh, it's it's an amazing film. It. I just watched it a few days ago, and there's some scenes in it where you see this person is suffering, and they they're falling down a hole and trying to look at their life. And the way he shot it is so amazing. It was the first thing I thought about when I thought about Annalisa describing her situation and how she's feeling as her condition is going on, and. The other thing that occurred to me is that with the Tegretol working or, or helping her feel a little bit better, nothing got her all the way better, but it did help a little. Something that I want to discuss, and when we get to interviewing some of the guests we're going to have later in this series, I'm, I'm curious in knowing if people have an opinion about the idea of medically effective countermeasures to the symptoms of what you might classify as a possession. If you are dealing with something that is spiritual in nature, can you counter it with medication if you believe any of this at all, or <laughs> right. vice versa, because there's an interesting idea there, and that comes down to the fundamental thing at the core of this case about whether or not there's something more to it than just a chemical issue in the body. No, so, that's interesting, because it, you, if you think about it, just logically, like something extra physical, you could say, something uh, that's spiritual, that's affecting the body physiologically with real physiological symptoms— well, chemically, you should be able to tamp some of those symptoms down. Yeah. But of course, it's like squeezing the balloon. It's going to bulge out somewhere else. So whatever this thing is you're dealing with, it's like, well, if it has some kind of physical control over this person and their biochemistry and, and neurology and, and all that, yeah, some chemicals might be able to affect that or cease them somewhat. But it's like with every other condition is that there's multiple things going on here. And often, you know, medications have side effects that then you have to take other medications to tamp those down. Yes. And that creates a myriad more problems with you and your body. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's an inter interesting thought here you brought up. So now we move on to the point at which things start to really be taking a turn for her. Father Alt, 
and other priests in his circle had continuously debated Annalisa's condition, just like everybody did. Annalisa herself with Peter, the, all the people around her are trying to help her. Everyone is constantly talking about what can we do to help this girl? And Father Alt had worked with depressed parishioners before, as well as those afflicted with schizophrenia, and he felt certain that whatever had been plaguing Annalisa was different. And now, conversely, in spite of all he'd been through with regard to the experiences that he had had before he even met her, he and the other priests thought that she might be surrounded by evil, or what they called umsessenheit circumcessio. Now, this is different from possession because the person is not personally occupied by demonic spirits, but rather they are encircling them. Yeah, that's an interesting point as well that Father Alt makes in his letter to Bishop Stangle, stating this case here, reviewing the, the elements of this case to him. He doesn't really go into detail, of course, because both of them know what they're talking about. But Father Alt says it may not be demonic possession full out, but it, it could be demonic molestation. Yes. That's what he would describe what happened to him as far as this pressing weight on him, this extreme nausea that he felt those few nights during his ordeal, the soaking sweats. He, he got tunnel vision. Yes. Where he he lost vision of colors for a while. And you can say like, well, this is all neurological. Like maybe he has a tumor. But, you know, that didn't seem to be the case with him. But it's interesting, yeah. So that's another classification, demonic molestation, where you're being tormented but not actually occupied. Yes, it's from without, not from within. Right, right. And the bishop who Forrest mentioned, the Bishop of Wurzburg, Bishop Stangle, he's the one that's refusing to allow an exorcism. As per the rules, Forrest was saying, and, and making sure that that's what needs to happen here, he was asked three times before he gave permission for that to move forward. At this point, he's still not sure that that's what needs to happen. So... Moving forward, Annalisa actually got her driver's license, and she was getting out and about, and she would borrow Peter's car and drive all around. And I wanted to point out, because I thought this was significant, if you are looking at the possibility of epilepsy with regard to her convulsions and seizures and all of that, again, something that we'll talk about here in the future episode, she never had a single incident while she was driving, not one. So that's something to be noted. They occurred in other situations, but uh, it didn't seem to ever, she never had an accident or any problems while she was driving Peter's car. So we now move on to another one of those paranormal events. And these are the ones that it's hard to work your mind around it just being a clinical problem. And we're not pushing one way or the other. We're just trying to cover all of them and say, here's one that falls in this category. Here's something, an event that falls in that category. Annalisa had moved up to her school now and she had her own room there. And at one point she had some friends in her room and they relayed that they were talking to each other and silently praying at the same time, at which point Annalisa said, please stop praying. It hurts. I can't stand it. And they were not talking out loud she could not have known that they were praying. So not too long after this, she begins to get bothered, as Forrest indicated earlier, by sacred objects. She threw her rosary in a corner during a group prayer session, and she even removed a picture of Christ from the wall in her room. She stopped attending church because, quote, she could only get as far as the door and not a step farther. Now, in 1975, she started having problems walking. Her legs were stiff and would not bend at the knees. She had to pull herself along the furniture in whatever room she was in. In July of 75, her body completely froze up, and her face froze in this grimace that scared her friend Anna. This is one of her friends from school, not her mother. And she stayed like this for 30 full minutes. Now, Father All made it clear that it was during this time period, roughly a year before her death, that prayer and blessings, which used to calm her, now had no effect. In fact, they seemed to get her agitated. Alt said, quote, you might say 
this was no longer Annalisa, end quote. Now, Annalisa had called him and asked him for help, saying she had no self-control and she wanted her sisters and Peter to be with her, but whenever they came into the room with her or were near her, she would throw things at them and she couldn't control herself. At this time, Father Alt silently prayed the exorcismus probativus in her company. When he did this, Annalisa jumped up and destroyed her rosary and then acted as though she was about to attack Father Alt or anyone else who came in the room. And at that very moment, her boyfriend Peter did show up in the room, at which point she said to him in a completely altered voice, Peter, get out. Oof. Yeah. So things are ramping up here, as you can see. Now, Father Alt was planning a visit to see her this is all of this stuff is playing out over several months. And so he had one of these days he was planning to go see her. And as we said, he was about 60 miles away, 62 miles away, 100 kilometers away. And he was going to go see her at her house. And when he arrived, Yosef, Annalisa's dad, took him into the living room and there was that horrible smell again. And Yosef explained to all that she had just been in that room. Then they went to the kitchen and this is the first time that Alt was seeing Annalisa. She came running quickly into the room as though she was about to assault Father Alt and then stopped rigidly, completely frozen right in front of him. Then she would leave and run out and come from the other way through another door and do it again. And she would come up to him like she was going to attack him and then freeze, her whole body rigid. And then finally she said, get out, you are tormenting me. And that's to Father Alt. He's ostensibly in this situation, he was kind of her main ally. So that's what's going on when he's coming over to see her. It's really unusual. And then when you think about how this all works and what's motivating her to feel this way, whether it's spiritual or something else, it starts to, I guess it gets confusing in terms of classification. How are you going to classify this behavior? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's like with people who have traumatic brain injuries or tumors or the classic case of the guy with the, the cannon ramrod fired through his head. I remember yeah. that one. This whole personality change. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that can happen. And there's lots of studies that have been done on people who are considered uh, sociopaths or, or even homicidal maniacs that have uh, different, you know, areas of their brain light up during uh, different thoughts. And so, yeah, you could say this all was a major personality change due to some disease. Even the stuff where she's talking in the voice of a man or something really altered and weird and uh, you've never heard her do that before, like, okay, that's maybe still within the range of physical possibility. And then there's a few instances here and there that I think other people would tend to dismiss because it's outside of the realm of their possibility. So mostly, yes, she's exhibiting things. It's like, okay, just the angriness or whatever, that's part of her personality. I don't get at any point here that she's faking any of this for some kind of attention because it's really... She's suffering here. And, yeah, and not it's that, ruining her life. Right. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, right. It's, it's dashing all her hopes and dreams. Exactly. You know? So, uh, you know, you could say like, well, that's that's part of it. But yeah, there's some strange things here and there. Like you said, the uh, perceived thoughts and Father Alt being a, an intuitive or I, I guess it reminded me of, uh, was it Mariana Sirtis from, uh, from Star Trek who could pick up <laughs> emotions? That's kind of what he's doing is that he's really empathic and he's getting this vibe. And so he's saying... This is not her anymore. There's something here, of course, from his religious perspective. It's like something's kind of taking over here. So he's becoming yeah. more convinced of that. And with Annalisa, she's more convinced of that herself as well. Yeah, and there was another encounter. This is now on uh, July 30th, 1975, when Peter came to see her. And he was, as we said, standing by her till the end. He encouraged her to go for a walk, even though she was having problems with her legs and they weren't working. She was in pain. But he managed to get her out of her room, and in the middle of the walk, she had like this 
momentary epiphany. She suddenly felt freed for a moment. In fact, she felt euphoric and said, quote, I'm free like never before. And this was the kind of thing that would happen to her periodically, but it never lasted. The very next day, she and Peter were in a grocery store, and she felt a change coming on, and she told him she thought it was starting up again. They rushed her back to her room at the school, and then when they got there, she froze up completely, becoming totally rigid as she stood directly in front of a crucifix. Now, according to Peter, she was growling like an animal and gritted her teeth so loudly he thought that they were going to fall out. She stood frozen like that, staring at that crucifix, not moving for a full hour. Afterwards, she told him that she had wanted to take the cross in her hand, but against her will, she was pushed back and couldn't reach it. So yeah, there are these instances where, seemingly bizarre as it is, where she is exhibiting extreme personality alteration and behavior coming from some, you know, a girl who was very shy, very well-mannered, very polite, very respectful all throughout her life, studious and smart, and becoming kind of monstrous at points here. Again, that could be due to this uh, chemical change, this alteration, whatever condition or disease that she's experiencing is changing her personality. And then there's these little moments of, you could call it extrasensory perception in a way, or bits of uh, premonition. So you can take this little instance here as maybe even a bit of extrasensory perception, if you will, that uh, her father, Yosef, had told his daughter, Annalisa, that Father Alt was going to visit. And Father Alt was not a frequent visitor, as we said. He rarely showed up. So that was kind of a special occasion. But Annalisa said to her dad, Roth, that dog, he is also going to come. So she here predicts that Father Roth is also going to show up with Father Alt, which was not known to her. So it's a little right. bit of strange premonition. It's like, yeah, she probably could have guessed that. Well, all right. Maybe, maybe well, not. He maybe, hadn't maybe been not. there in a long time. He introduced the case to Father Alt, but he was not generally present. Exactly, so. right. Right, if you remember, that was the first visit to a priest. He was just monitoring the interview. He did not take part. So he's kind of, of a peripheral player here. You know, you can brush that off or you can uh, give it some uh, pause for thought. So after all these different events are happening, Bishop Stangle finally gave permission for an exorcism to be performed. And on August 3rd of 1975, 11 months before she would die, Father Alt and Father Roth recited a small exorcism over Annalisa. During this exorcism, Annalisa yelled, Stop! It's burning! They asked her where, and she said, In my back, in my arms. And at one point, she tried to knock the book containing the exorcism rite out of Father Alt's arms. Interestingly, at one point, she actually declared, again, I am free during this session, but that only lasted a few minutes. This would be a recurring thing because she kept having these, like we said, temporary feelings of being released from whatever had her. And this for her was a palpable feeling that was super obvious to her, but tragically, it never lasted. Now, at this early stage in the exorcisms, Annalisa stated that she wanted to eat, but she was not allowed to. Sometimes there would be breaks, however, and she would say, quickly, feed me now. I can eat now. At this point, the priests involved in her case are pushing hard for permission to take more direct measures. This was presumably based on how they felt she was reacting to what they were doing. They felt that they were actually making progress of one kind or another, or that they would be able to ultimately, and they wanted to save her. By September of 1975, Bishop Stangle approved the higher form of exorcism in a letter that closed, quote, may God give us his help, end quote. Things only got worse from there over the course of the next year. 67 exorcism rites were conducted, and some of the events that unfolded during these sessions included 
continued and ongoing destruction of sacred objects, crucifixes, rosaries, statues of the Virgin Mary. Her sister would try and stop her, and she would exclaim, Let me do it, Roswitha. It helps me. She began to exhibit signs of the stigmata with wounds on her hands and feet that she insisted she had not made, and she frequently went into full trances, laying motionless on the floor and rigid. It's at this point that we wanted to play just a little piece of some of the audio that you can actually find online pretty easily of some of Annalisa's sessions. Over time, the priests worked to elicit the names of the demons possessing her, and eventually those names were revealed, and they were surprising. These names are a point of contention to this day for reasons we'll discuss later in the series, but they're going to stand out to you right away. The first one was Judas, who, according to the church, was well known for a history of possession. Eventually, they also got the names Lucifer, Nero, Hitler, Cain, and a disgraced pastor named Fleischmann, who was in fact the former pastor of Ettelben, where Father Alt was now the pastor. And this is a point which I have to say, and we'll get into this more as we go on with the series, I'm my reaction to all these names is they're very suspect. Um, <laughs> Hitler and Kane. I mean, you're really going with the superstars of bad behavior well, here. Are you going to name um, a bunch of people you never <laughs> heard of? Like uh, Fred? Like, uh, who's Fred? Like, he's just some guy. He's really bad. That's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. you're going to go with the big names. But you made a point earlier. If you go with the demon route here and, and Beelzebub and uh, Pazuzu and all that, they're tricksters. Aren't they constantly trying to get you to believe they are someone else or, you know, deflect the blame onto someone else or another entity? So my point is, how concrete is this information? Yeah. Yeah. How can you trust something given to you from beyond the veil from the other side? That's true. That's a, that's a good point. And, but here's the thing about the names. Once you have the name of the demon, you have power over it. And and that's one of the rules, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the rules. They know this. So they'll be reluctant to share their names or maybe sometimes that not share their real name to what you were just saying. Because once they give that to the exorcist, it presents an opportunity for weakness. And according to the Rituale Romanum, demons need to speak from the mouth of those possessed. And that Rituale also demands that certain questions be asked of them, which they supposedly must answer truthfully. I don't know how all this got established, but it's <laughs> well, because there, there's yeah. no doubt that they're lying as well. But Right. <laughs> Again, this stuff is ageless, so it's an interesting prospect to think. The one version of the main version, the Rituale Romanum, comes from 1614. So yes. these are very old rules, but you're talking about ancient entities here. So when we kind of joke around and we say, well, there seem to be rules about the other side, it's like, well, there's things that seem to be consistent mostly, but who knows? We don't know. And uh, even if you are in this business, I think that you can come up with a, a manual of sorts. And this is not just about possession. The rituale is, uh, I believe, all Catholic rites for the Roman Catholic Church that uh, describe how to do everything, essentially. So that's just part of it. Again, it's not just about uh, possession as far as I know. So but what you have here is that um, I'm not sure anybody has all the concrete rules. I believe maybe if you were Jesus, 
then he's laying down the law. You got you to gotta answer him correctly. But who knows about anybody else? It's all still kind of vague for me as, as far as like what's going to work. You know, and as we're mentioning here, 67 sessions of trying to exercise from her, whatever's happening. So then you're wondering, like, is it working at all? Well, is it just upsetting them? So nobody knows here. There are no concrete pathways to recovery here in this realm. Well, as these as these sessions continue, she has to be held down by three grown men, including her dad, Peter, and a family friend. And she attempts to bite and kick all of them during the rite. She tells them all that the devil sits on her lower back. She screams and gyrates, cursing, saying things like, stop with that shit, you dirty sow. Or if they had holy water, she screamed, put away that shit. To be clear, she wasn't doing this all the time, but she was doing it. And the sessions are a lot more mundane at times than what you see in the movies. They're certainly not without their excitement, but the rules, as we've just been talking about when it comes to how these work, are kind of fascinating. Apparently, you can take a break. This is one of the things I read in the book. Everybody takes a break, right? Yeah, Yeah. you take a break. The the priest will say, she must rest, and the demons agree, and very well, and then everybody just chills out for a little bit, I guess. It's unusual, but... um, (laughs) How do we know it's usual here? Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So it's very curious. Here's another thing that fascinated me. At one point, Father Renz, who was conducting the exorcisms, asked the question about when Annalisa was afflicted and a voice came from her that said she was not born yet when she was cursed. And it went on to explain that she was being cursed by a friend of Annalisa's mother in her hometown, Liebfling. The family attempted to look into this only to find out that that woman was now deceased. So that is interesting to me because there's a concept of um, a penance possession, which we will talk about later in the series, and the idea of doing penance for someone else's sins. And we're going to remind you that Marta, Anna's first daughter, who was older than Annalisa, who died when Annalisa was four, was born out of wedlock. And so if you're looking at this possibility of this voice saying that there was a curse from another woman in the hometown where Annalisa had been born, maybe if you are looking for spiritual explanations for Annalisa's problems, you could draw a line connecting this curse from before Anna was born connecting to this out-of-wedlock child. I don't know. It is interesting to me that that was something that came out, but it also could be something that Annalisa was herself suggesting internally because she knew all that family history. Now, of all the ongoing incidents that happened, there was another one that was seemingly supernatural in nature when Father Renz brought five small bottles of water to the room Annalisa was in. They were all different, so he could tell them apart, but they were unlabeled. A few of them had holy water in them from San Damiano and Lourdes. The rest had tap water in them, and Father Renz was the only one who knew which ones had what water in them. And he said, and the witnesses testified to the fact that she screamed wildly when the holy water was cast upon her, or the demons did, but only the holy water. She had no reaction to the tap water. Right, and that's a blind uh, test there where she didn't know which water was what. So it was a lucky guess, maybe. Yeah, if she's faking it, it's a lucky guess. Exactly. So the rites continued. Uh, There was that sort of cliche exorcism activity of Father Renz often asking who he was speaking to on the list of characters and requesting that some particular person make an appearance. Throughout all of these sessions, she was continuing to see doctors reluctantly, reporting that her consciousness no longer belonged to her. 
that it had been taken over by something else. She said that she felt as if she was spying on her own existence through a hole of some kind. And again, that reminds me again of, of that scene from the movie Get Out that I was talking about earlier. Mm. They portray that on film in a very effective way. But the strategy of the exorcisms often involve the priests baiting the demons, taunting them and tricking them into sharing information. The demon's weapon, according to their belief, is the power of a curse. But conversely, the priest can threaten the demon with language such as, at the end of the world, you will be annihilated. Your head will be crushed under the heel of God. So they are trying everything. But here's the other interesting thing. Some things just don't work. Some things do and some don't. They find certain biblical verses don't work. They don't invoke them anymore. Other ones seem to get a larger reaction. So Father Renz is constantly having to modify his toolbox to gain the most ground. The problem is they're fighting a losing battle. They're not making a ton of progress. Now, over time, during these exorcism rites, something bizarre happens in that it becomes clear that the demons want to leave, or at least they say they do, but they can't. They're, in fact, being forbidden from leaving by Mary, the mother of God. This opens a whole litany of questions, which we're going to be putting forth later to one of our guests on this in this series. We have this scenario where Mary, the mother of God, is not only preventing the demons from leaving Annalisa's body, but she's also giving Father Wren's instructions on what to do next at times during the course of the exorcism. All of this is being enacted through voices emanating from Annalisa. So she'll be passing on advice saying, pray this more, pray that more, say this or that. But then also the demons are saying, she won't let us leave. So there's a whole lot of confusing things going on here, and it's hard to understand what the possible reason would be for torturing Annalisa so much. At one particular session, it would seem that Father Renz was one by one able to cast all of Annalisa's demons out, and they angrily departed, announcing their names as they left. He then was leading the room in song to celebrate, as you were through all time, so you shall remain in eternity. Thinking that it might possibly be over, one more voice is heard from Annalisa, and it says the following, I have not gone out yet. Father Renz then asked, who is not out yet? And the answer came back simply, I. Mm -hmm. So there, here we got this lingering being well, that is not being tricked into sharing its name. Right. Well, who, who do you think I would refer to? Well, I don't know. They're We've got uh, the, Judas, Cain, Hitler, Lucifer, Nero, Well, there's all Father these different Right. There's all these different levels, but uh, rarely do you hear about the number one guy there in the underworld. So yeah. to me, when something says, it is I, it's like, you know who it is. So, yeah. and that's the one that you don't have power over. Now, there's something that's maybe, or maybe not make a connection to this later about, because this was the inspiration for the film, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And I remember very clearly in the film, towards the end, Emily Rose, or Annalisa, if you want to make that connection there, is, is given a choice by Mother Mary, in that you can go now and your pain and suffering will be taken away immediately. You'll be whisked away to a better place or you can choose to continue this fight and continue the suffering, but again, as sacrifice and as taking on the burden for others to make this mean something. So she was presented with a choice, and her choice, I believe in the film, was to continue on. To, to continue, right. To continue the, the penance. To continue the penance, to continue this burden. And this is what Annalisa has said all along since... The beginning of her tribulations here is that she feels that she must atone for others' sins and that she is willing to take this on and fight this fight, even though it's 
crushing her. And towards the end, she had completely stopped eating. She had lost over 100 pounds. She was a shadow of her former self. She was once a beautiful and vibrant young girl. But by the end, she's gaunt, malnourished, bruised, tortured with convulsions uh, and paralysis. And what the church felt were the symptoms of possession. And every rite seemed to gain a little ground only to have it lost again. The demons would theoretically all be leaving, but then they would all return. And on July 1st of 1976, Annalisa Michelle gave in and died in that bed at the back of her family's home, at which point she was finally out of harm's way. Wrapping up part one of our series on Annalisa Michelle, there's a lot of questions that I have. Is this supernatural at all, or is it psychological, a medical issue? There's parts of it, frankly, to me that feel kind of ludicrous, but there's the smaller parts of it, believe it or not. I, I think that the bulk of it, a lot of the paranormal events that we talked about happening, the things that other people witnessed and participated in, whether it's the rapping sounds and, and that sort of thing— that stuff is harder to explain. Uh, the names that are coming forward when they're asking who's possessing you, that feels a little bit absurd. But by the same token, she was a well-educated, sophisticated girl. The juvenile names don't necessarily jibe with what she would have come up with. She was super well-informed. So I don't know. At one point, she exclaimed that Hitler knew he was damned for all the lives he had taken as well as committing suicide himself, or the demon that called himself Hitler said that. For me, nearly everything that happens feels like it's framed by her own personal knowledge. All the languages she spoke were ones that she inherently knew, uh, including regional dialects that were ones that she'd been exposed to growing up. She was extremely devout, even much more than her parents possibly, and as such she had enough Catholic knowledge to support the overwhelming majority of the conversations she had during her seizures and during the exorcism rites. So the, the question becomes, was this possession real? These folks that all thought they were trying to help her were tried for negligent homicide, which to me is what's truly fascinating about this case. Legally, how do you define evil? Does it have to be supernatural in nature? Can you attribute physical ailments to evil? It turns out that a whole lot of what was happening to Annalisa can be attributed to various symptoms associated with epilepsy and, believe it or not, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And the next parts of this series, we're going to talk to some experts in some of these fields and find out what their professional opinion of Annalisa's case might be. Well, one of our guests is actually going to be Brother John Duffy, a former priest himself, who wrote a book on the case that might surprise you. Uh, Forrest, did you have anything you wanted to say before we wrap this up? Everybody loves the phrase Occam's razor, and you take, like, what's on the surface here as start from there. And as extreme as it is, and, and certainly we've done a little bit of reading on psychosis and OCD and bipolar disorder, and I certainly know, you know, have a few friends with bipolar disorder, and sadly, I know a couple that have taken their lives because it was so extreme. You know, I'm not saying this is impossible, but this is really, really extreme, I think. And I, I don't think that any clinical person would disagree when you start having this range of exotic behavior and such a personality change. But I believe it's possible. Yeah, you can take the tack that, like, most likely, maybe it is something like epilepsy in a very extreme case or obsessive compulsive disorder in a very, very extreme case causing this. The human body is just still wondrous. We know so little about it, especially the human mind and how the brain works. Still just cracking the mysteries of that. We've gone a long ways. 
especially with the neural network and how, you know, the brain functions electronically and all that and, and biochemically. But there's still so much we don't know. It does miraculous things and very bizarre and very wondrous and, and strange and sometimes awful things people can exhibit when it's tweaked that badly. On the other hand, then you come to little things that for me raise some doubts or just things to think about that may keep you up at night. You talk about the me Western medicine and the, the medical field, and you talk about the judicial system. It doesn't matter what country you're from, any, any kind of, uh, you know, country that has a fairly well-working judicial system. There is no place for the devil and demons. There's no place for the devil and demons and spirits in Western medicine. You can't consider that. That's not quantifiable. As some of the doctors have said, you know, or purported to have said, there's no medicine I can give you, there's no pharmaceutical I can give you to combat evil or the devil or spiritual possession. So it's not quantifiable, it's not part of the scientific method, you have to throw it out. So that's what's, what was interesting when, uh, I believe in part of the court case, that the prosecution did not believe it was possession, they'd ruled that out, and that it was strictly a medical condition that she was suffering from, and that this could have been preventable. What do you do legally if somebody, you know, was refusing to eat or drink? Well, if it's like a prisoner, they can force you through the other end to take nutrients and liquids. So is that what you have to do here to keep her alive if somebody's refusing that? And what could they have done? Well, obviously, you know, look, I trust that their legal system was, was fully and well-functioning, That, and maybe there was some negligence there, but then you have to answer the question like we mentioned before. It's like, is that the prosecution saying like, no, 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 we know what possession is because it has to meet these parameters and it didn't meet that legal definition of the parameters and so it wasn't possession. So then we have to look at medical negligence. No, I don't think that they're saying like, we've seen possession and sometimes it's real and this isn't the case. Like, no, you, you have to throw that out. So there's several levels like any paranormal conversation. First, do you believe that it's possible? Okay, then if you do, that takes the conversation to another level, which is what we're seeing here. If you don't believe possession is possible at all, there's no spirit world, there's no incursions, there's no spiritual molestation that's possible, then you're looking at a medical and possibly a criminal case. If you believe that that's possible, then you have to get the first stage. Okay, which is what we're going to look at here soon in the next parts. Was it then possession? And then if it was, then was there negligence? So for me, anyway, the things that you can't discount here, they're kind of paranormal events, possibly that you, I believe if you, again, if you believe in the paranormal at all, the smells, the sounds of the knocking heard by Annalisa and other people, Father Alt, he heard strange knocks coming from his wardrobe, the smells that were smelled by different people in remote places at, at different times, the holy water test, her being able to suss out which one was the holy water and reacting very negatively to that the knowledge of people that were going to show up before they arrived, and the superhuman strength. So, I mean, but there's shades of that. Superhuman strength, sure. We've seen a mother lift a car off her child who was in danger. Adrenaline can be pumped up so much that that can happen, but they're totally wiped out afterwards. So I think if you believe in some aspect of the paranormal being real, these are things you have to consider. <laughs> Well, that's going to wrap up part one of our series on Annalisa Michel. We'll be back next week with part two, where we'll discuss the court case following her death and talk with experts about possible explanations for her condition. Please remember to support our sponsors or visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. And if you're looking for our series on Amelia Earhart, visit bit.do slash Japan. 
Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Heather Olson. My name is Carl Ligon. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Carl with a K. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.